Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 176, The Place of the Erotic. This week we're joined by Insight Meditation teacher Christopher Titmus to explore the place of sexuality, eros, and love in the practice of Dharma. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm here today joined by a very special guest in the UK, Christopher Titmus. Christopher, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I just wanted to share a little background, as I usually do, for the people that aren't familiar with you. Um, you're a former monk in the Theravada tradition. You spent time in Thailand and India, and that was back probably in the 60s and 70s, right? Yes. So I left uh, England and got on the hippie trail to uh, India, and that was 1967. Mm. And uh, 1970, I took ordination as a Theravada Buddhist monk, as you mentioned, and then I disrobed six years later in 1976. Nice. And since then, you've been teaching meditation around the world. You've been leading retreats all over the place, including an annual retreat you do in Bodh Gaya, India, which you've been doing since 1975. It's like a month-long retreat. Um, and you're also an engaged activist. Uh, you're part of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship on the Advisory Council. Uh, yes. I don't regard much difference between uh, the inner and the outer. Mm. So the inner life, the meditative life, and the creative initiative of the outer, I think is a um, dynamic part of what the exploration of the Dharma is about. Beautiful. And that ties really nicely into the topic that we wanted to explore with you today, which is basically sexuality and the Dharma. Mm. Uh, but before I jump in, I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit about a process you do called Dharma Inquiry, because the reason I thought this would be a fun topic to explore with you is that I heard you in conversation on retreat with a young man who was asking you about sexuality and asking you about desire. And in this conversation, it wasn't simply a Q&A. He was actually up there with you in front of everyone, and you guys were doing what's called a Dharma Inquiry. And I was wondering if you could sort of share what that is and how that's different than a traditional Dharma talk. Yes, I'd be delighted to. Essentially, around 20 uh, years ago, uh, I kept the dialogues, the inquiries, to either the one-to-one -one meetings and on the large groups, perhaps six or seven, and have some dialogue and an exchange. And from time to time, a person or persons would say, Ah, oh, Christopher, it would have been lovely if that dialogue we had would have been of such interest to everybody in the hall. So the outcome of that got me thinking, and I thought, well, could it be transferred into the hall and fit in well with the silent meditation retreat? So for a little while I did some experiment, and then from that made the period of time for about an hour, possibly up to an hour and a half, 
and I would put out an invitation in the hall to anyone to come and sit beside me, had the cushion beside me at the front of the hall, and from that the dire inquiry got underway. So a person, as you refer to the, um, the guy asking about sexuality, person would come up, perhaps ask me a question, I'd find ways to avoid answering, especially the difficult ones, and turn it around and ask that person some questions with a view and the intention to contribute to insights understanding for the person who's inquiring, for myself as the questioner and responder, and also to others listening in the hall as well. So over the last couple of decades, it's now fitted in fairly seamlessly, I would say, into the rhythm of the retreat. Nice. And just as I was listening to some of your Dharma inquiries, I was thinking, wow, it's really neat. It's so different to see people's wisdom kind of being invited out in front of the whole group instead of maybe just the teacher being the holder of wisdom and sharing it. I thought that was interesting. I have to agree 110% on, on that. I know from the exchanges and the sharing and the depth, some of the insights, and realizations and things that are being pointed out by the person I'm speaking to, I find for myself inspirational. I learn a lot. I find it very beneficial. And for those who are listening as well, because many stories and accounts of the person who's in the inquiry with myself, and I'm sharing my own experiences as well, of course, are also the stories and the experiences of other people. Mm. So it's a real collective gathering of the Sangha engaged in looking into some of the major issues of life. Nice, nice. And in this particular conversation I was listening to, the young man asked you a, what seems like a really common question about something like if the Buddhist path is to end desire and sexuality is clearly one of the most powerful ways we feel desire, mm-hmm. how to work with sexual energy. That was kind of the beginning of the question. And I was surprised by your answer. It wasn't sort of simple, pat answer that I've sometimes heard. Uh, and no disrespect to the people who, you know, answered in that way. But just that basically the Buddhist stance is we don't harm people with our sexual energy. And that's pretty much it. And there might be some mm. guidelines around that. But I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the way that you approach that topic and that particular question. Yes. It is clearly a vitally important uh, question and it's a question which requires our deep interest in ethics and uh, which some teachers very appropriately will make a reference to but it's more than that that's um, a foundation and a principle of exploration but the act of making love the communication with another human being, whether of the opposite sex or of the same sex, what emerges out of that dynamic, whether it's in a short-term relationship or a long-term relationship, these are all areas of, of the heart, of energy, of the place of the erotic, which I find is precious and beautiful in life, and the dynamic of the interaction 
and that requires a lot of exploration and attention. Therefore, some of the inquiries are looking at that and looking at the challenge of that and the confusion, and it's a kind of central confusion. The key or the buzzword is the word desire, which has such different kind of meaning in the language of the Buddha in the use of the language in the West. The word desire in the Pali language is tanha, T-A-N-H-A. It has a specific connotation to it. It's desire with other factors that are going along with it which in some way or other are unhealthy to take what's called the three poisons of the mind greed, it's got desire in it obviously anger, violence, it has desire in it fear has desire in it confusion has desire in it so the application of the word is desire is something which is problematic which has an impact on our own life Stress has desire in it, worry has desire in it, anxiety, etc. And it also has its impact and consequence on others. So when we use the word desire, Buddhist language, it has something unhealthy, unwise, unskillful, unclear about it. Problem is, English language, we use desire more freestyle. So we say, oh, I want to go to the toilet, I want a cup of tea, I have a desire to read the newspaper, etc. So when we're going back to love, normal minders say, oh, there has to be desire. One of the teachers at Spirit Rock said to me, oh, you need desire to make love. And I said, of course you don't need desire to make love. To make love, you need love. Understand the difference? So in other words, sometimes desire corrupts the act of making love. You know, in its most gross form, it would be rape, it would be sexual abuse, it would be uh, manipulation. There is desire in the act of touch or in the act of making love. When desire, in that corrupt way that the Buddha uses the word, is not in the picture, then the act of making love is precious, it's loving, it's got passion to it, it's got eros to it, it's respectful, it's sensitive, and there's a, a deep mutual awareness. All of that doesn't require desire in it. Do you get the picture? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a distinction there for sure. Okay, that's the distinction. So... The act of making love can get corrupted with desire and therefore it's just having sex. No respect for how the people fit the person feels, so to speak. And the act of making love can be totally clear, pure, and not corrupted with desire. And that's the distinction and it's the critical distinction. The Buddhist world tends to confuse the two. And would you say a little bit about why you think that's the case? A little bit historical. 
initially the uh, tradition started off with men and men after a little bit of resistance from the Buddha but he got, overcame his resistance to women as well going from the confinement and it was a confinement of the caste and home life a very restricted way of life you know, men were expected to follow their father's trade or whatever women were expected just to be mothers and stay indoors too and a radical and rather refreshing way encouraged men and women to go from home to homeless and that also for a whole variety of reasons men and women who went into that way of life abstained from sexuality that was the tradition of India it was a celibate way of life two and a half thousand years later that hard and rather black and white division between the householder's life and the homeless life contemporary language called monks and nuns seems to me that division that women and men have worked very very hard to mm, dissolve that division today women and men can live a homeless way of life they go wandering, they go traveling, they go to India or whatever it may be men and women also can engage in close intimate sexual uh, relationships have the benefits of contraception if they wish to use and can engage in those activities in a loving and uh, caring way an opportunity which simply was not available two and a half thousand years ago it is today and therefore sexual life for those men and women who are living a sexual life still requires the Dharma of ethics the Dharma of respect, of sensitivity, passion and the general uh, insight and understanding of that whole dynamic Mm. And I guess my next question has to do with the specifics. Like, as a practitioner, I hear that there is this possibility of making love that's kind of free of what you're calling tanha. But then it's so clear that the gap between how I currently experience myself as a sexual being and that possibility, there's a gap there. And how do I, how do I close the gap as a practitioner? Yes, it isn't an easy area. Quite a few Buddhist teachers, Western Buddhist teachers, and of course known plenty over the years, and also in the ordained Sangha as well, there's a certain orthodoxy. And the uh, orthodoxy for some men and women isn't very uh, helpful. What I mean by that is there is a tendency to view being in a relationship is something which, if it's successful, it will be for the long term. That um, it should be absolutely um, monogamous. And it should fit into you know, the kind of Western values and culture. And there are good, sound, moral, quote-unquote, reasons for that. But it's not always quite that simple for women and men of any age 
And what I mean by that, the power of love, of falling in love, of closeness and intimacy, really has to be put, for some, as it were, in the heart of practice. And that means that, as the Buddha constantly pointed out, the mindfulness element is both inner and outer. So it's not only engaging in closeness and possibly touch and sexual intimacy with another, and to know what's going on, so to speak, within oneself, which is a challenge enough, but equally, what is happening for the other. And that outer awareness matters as much. So in other words, one man or one woman can feel very clear, very comfortable in um, the act of making love, and the the steps or the process or the procedure or the... uh, development that brings two people to being lovers. But for the other person, the act of making love can carry all sorts of significances. It could mean it shows the beginnings of a long-term commitment. Or it could bring the feeling of vulnerability or uh, uncertainty. The person makes love and then the following morning could be full of regret or self-doubt or confusion or feeling manipulated or whatever. So for two people to engage in the process towards intimacy and in the act of it have to know each other rather well to ensure that the dynamic of it isn't going to generate a lot of dukkha, a lot of unhappiness and disappointment and feeling hurt. And the attitude towards that and after the act or acts of making love matter a great deal. And that whole process I do feel is important rather than just taking the view, oh, relationship should be for the long term, etc., I don't know how it is in the United States, but for we Europeans, I don't think that's a common view at all. The until death do us part view has uh, shifted immensely in the last generation of people. Right. I'd say it's probably the same here looking at divorce rates for sure. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And divorce is one thing. And so a relationship, whether it lasts for one week or one month or one year or one decade or half a century itself, may, and I can speak from experience here, I've had some wonderful and precious relationships over the years, been out of relationship, of course, over the years for varying lengths of time, and it's a constant exploration. So when the relationship comes to an end, I mean, for some people that might be marriage and divorce, like you mentioned, it may be that it just comes to an end for multiple conditions. Just as the beginning of a relationship is important, equally important, if the relationship comes to an end, and figures show that most will, how do I make the transition 
wisely and skillfully in seeing impermanence from intimacy to friendship, from lovers to an ongoing friendly communication, even though there will be some heartache afterwards, some doubt or some sadness or whatever, yet keeping, could say, a real meta, a real kindness ongoing no matter what happens. And that beginning, middle and end of relationships, the arising, the staying and the passing, as the Buddha would say, matters as much in relationship as in any area or other area of life. And that's part of our practice. That's so interesting. I've never really heard anyone uh, talk specifically about the end of relationships and skillfulness around that. It's a major one because relationships, and if I talk a little personally for the moment, so in about the past 12 to 13 years, I've had the privilege of being in three relationships. And three years, three years, and two years over the period of time. And relationships come to an end, and sometimes it's not because of any real conflict between two people. And I think in the Dharma world, and I can see this in myself as well, that sometimes the two people in the relationship, in a way, maybe at different points in their evolution, where they are. Sometimes, uh, in my case, the beautiful, uh, very beautiful, I might add, uh, women I've been in the relationship, at one point, they being in their 30s, have felt their urge to be parents, to be a mother. And I have a, a daughter, and I have no wish to increase the population any further. <laughs> so the outcome of that was a change. Mm. Sometimes it's geographical. You know, I have one partner from Australia, and I'm living here. That's another factor. Sometimes one person just wishes to move on for all sorts of extremely good reasons, or the two people agree. So in the dynamics of change, whether it's some personal conflict between the two people, whether it's other factors which are arising from outer, biological, can we handle and learn to work with endings well. And I think the major one is to go from being lovers, short or long term, to being friends and making that shift. And I think it's an essential part of the Dharma practice. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. 
This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.